Welcome everyone to another episode of Elbows Tight Podcast. It's your host, Travis. Today, we have a fantastic guest in Mr. Todd Fox. He is a former Marine Corps veteran. He owns tour defense and he does executive level escorting and defense and personal protection. And then also for celebrities, he's traveled around almost 150 countries, written five books, an incredible wealth of knowledge. Started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in 1995 or 96 while he was still in the Marine Corps. Did 12 years as a Marine. And he is a just a great source of knowledge. And in, it's always nice talking to fellow veterans when it comes to Jiu-Jitsu because we have a lot of the same ideas and a lot of the same uh, values when it comes to what jujitsu does for people. And he was no different. It was, it was an amazing conversation. I am super excited about you guys listening to this. So hopefully you enjoy, let me know what your best, your favorite part is. You can either DM me on Instagram or whatever. Also check out elbows tight.com elbows tight everywhere. Join the Facebook community. Don't forget to do that. It's down in the description below. Uh, we're headstrong, almost 40 members already. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you guys so much for all the support on the last episode. It is crushing it right now in analytics. That means you guys are enjoying it. Hopefully you're sharing it with people. So thank you for that. If you haven't listened, go listen to that one after this one. And yeah, let me know what you guys think. So without any further ado, here is a word from our sponsors and then Todd. <laughs> Thanks guys. We'll catch you later. Peace. What's up guys? Are you tired of grappling body hair on and off the mats? Well, have no fear because we have a solution that will keep you rolling smoothly and in style. Thanks to Manscaped. Picture this, you're about to step onto the jujitsu mats, ready to dominate and submit all your opponents. But wait, what's that? Your unruly body hair. <laughs> That's why you need Manscaped, the global leader in men's grooming. With their precision engineering tools, you could tame the hairiest situations and grapple yourself to victory. Imagine executing the perfect arm bar, all while knowing your ball hair is trying to sneak in a sneaky triangle choke. Thanks to the Lawnmower 4.0, you can easily eliminate that unwanted hair with this cutting edge technology. It's like a black belt for body hair. So to my fellow BJJ practitioners, whether you're a white belt or a black belt, let Manscaped be your secret weapon on and off the mats. Go to manscaped.com and use code ETP20 for 20% off and free shipping. That's ETP20 at manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping. And with Manscaped, you'll be a force to reckon with on the mats and in the mirror. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I probably just said this in the intro, but uh, I don't know how else to start these recordings <laughs> for the interview. So today we have uh, Todd Fox. How you doing today, Todd? What's happening, Travis? Uh, I am doing great. It's a beautiful sunny day. I live up in Washington State right now. And uh, for the next maybe two and a half months, we probably won't get much rain. So we've been trying to enjoy it as much as possible. <laughs> Where are you at right now? You said you're in the EU? Yeah, I'm in the European Union right now. We've been in Europe for a few months and uh, getting ready to wrap things up over here and head back to the States, thankfully. You've been there for a few months? Uh, several months, yeah. This, oh, wow. uh, by the time I get home, it'll be four months. Oh, wow. So do you ever travel back home during this? Or are you there like the entire time? No, no. We're, we're forward the entire time. And, wow. um, you know, the, the break that we get is when we come back to the States. And then uh, I'll be there for a few weeks and then gone again. So that's, that's the lifestyle. Is, is four months the longest stint that you've done in a while, or have you done longer? Uh, no, I mean, pre-COVID, four months is a pretty normal rotation. Oh, okay. Um, you know, COVID obviously stopped things for a lot of people and a lot of businesses, but, um, you know, three to four months is average. Oh, wow. 
So, um, what what are you doing in in the EU? You work. You have the company. Uh, what is it called? I'm drawing a blank right now. So the it, it's got a few names because the business does different types of security, okay. whether it's entertainers or uh, if it's high net worth individuals, very wealthy people, or if it's governmental bodies. Um, but basically, people refer to us by the website name, which is Tour Protection. Right. So they call us Tour Protection. Uh, the website's tourprotection.com. So um, normally we're, depending on what it is, we're doing either short tasks, which are, you know, a few days to a few weeks. But then if we're doing something that is um, like long-term relationships with with certain clients, we we may spend six months, you know, in a foreign country. So it just just depends on what the task is. So how how do people get in contact with you? Or is it just word of mouth? Or is it like there's like that black card that people you have to have in order to contact you? Like, how does it work? Yeah, that black card, that the Amex version is called the Centurion card that doesn't have a limit. <laughs> and so if you want to contact me, make sure you have your, your Centurion card in hand. Um, no, uh, although all of our clients have those, but no, um, our, our business is 100% word of mouth. So okay. we don't advertise. We don't, you know, there's no ad out there saying, hey, hire us. Because the people that, that are looking for guys like us, they don't want to... Uh, come in cold and not know the person, not know who they are, not know what their company is, not know what their history is. And as I'm sure you know, you can give somebody a piece of paper full of lies and it doesn't really tell you a lot about them. So what they do is they go to other managers, other agents, other entertainers, other dignitaries, other governmental bodies and say, hey, do you know these guys? Say, yeah, they're great. Or they suck, whatever whatever their opinion is. And if they, they need what we do and they like the style that we do it in and we come to an agreement on price, then we're there. So you started this company in 1999 while you were still in the Marine Corps, right? How did how yes, did sir. that whole start? And obviously you mentioned word of mouth. How did you start building the clientele when you didn't have any clientele? Um, it's kind of a, a weird way. Uh, and it wasn't intentional in terms of who I ended up building the largest clientele with. But uh, while I was in the Marine Corps, I was fighting in no holds barred. And um, I was training different people. And I was training out at Hickson's in LA. And uh, they had a lot of uh, actors and directors and producers and all kinds of people. Um, some of which are, are people that are well known in the jiu-jitsu community now, like Guy Ritchie and Sean Patrick Flannery and those dudes who trained with me. Um, but they would come through and, and a lot of them would end up going on vacation or doing business down in Mexico. And I'm a Spanish speaker. So with my military background, my fighting background, uh, my language skills, they're like, Hey, can you come down here and set this up for us and help us with X, Y, and Z. And that's kind of how it, it got its start. And then I kind of rolled one into two, two into three, three into five, five. And it just, Fibonacci sequence just kept kind of right. growing. And so now about 80% of our business is entertainment and 20% is is kind of a, a blend of executives and dignitaries. So you mentioned in there that you were doing jujitsu at Hickson's place. You started jujitsu 95, 96 era. What was it exactly. like back then, right? You were re- on recruiting duty. You, you were right next to Hickson's school, right? You go in there. Did you have the typical Marine mindset of like, man, I'm, I'm going to go in here. I've been doing the Marine Corps combat. I know exactly what I'm doing. And then you went in there and got humbled. A hundred percent. So I was in St. Louis where I am from and um, a guy named Rodrigo Vaghi opened up a gym next to the recruiting office. And I mean, side by side, like mm-hmm. not a couple blocks down, but like next door. And one of the other recruiters, um, 
this gunny had gone over there and, and made a relationship with him and said, you got to go over there and try. And at the time I was fighting, um, like bare knuckle karate and I was teaching karate at night and I was winning stuff. And then, as you know, in the Marine Corps, we have smokers. So we're boxing and beating the mm-hmm. hell out of each other. And, and I was doing good at all of that stuff and, and had a, a lot of street experience. Um, so my thought was exactly as you had noted, which is I'm <laughs> going to go in here and I'm going to own these dudes. I'm just going to smash them up and show them what it's about. And uh, I went in and the first day I watched a little bit and um, and basically Rodrigo you know, invited me to come back and train. Uh, when I came back to train, you know, I asked if he was ready to go and he's like, poor buddy, not with me, with my guys. <laughs> and so at the time, I, and I, I know this is kind of weird for people that do jujitsu now to hear, but at the time a blue belt was a deity. A blue belt was like crazy. Um, and he was a black belt already. Uh, he got his black belt at Umaita. He was teaching there in Brazil and then had moved to St. Louis and so my first go was with a white belt and I'm like, Oh my God, they give me this like 16, seven year old kid who's 150 pounds and I'm just going to smash him. And, um, you know, I took him down and then like, I don't, probably 20, 30 seconds, this kid's choking me. And I, I didn't realize what a triangle choke was. So he's like, bam. And I'm like, Oh, you know, I tap. I'm like, Oh, something happened. I just made a mistake, you know, some silly error. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I went back, we're rolling again. And maybe 45 seconds later, a minute later, bam, he smashes me again with a triangle. And, and at this point, it's like, uh, I'm trying to understand what happened, but I've never seen this before. So I can't process how this little kid with his legs just choked me almost unconscious. And uh, so that was the beginning of, of my experience. And I would say that lasted for a couple months and then a couple months of kind of breaking even and then eventually starting to, to dominate. But, um, you know, it, it's humbling. Humbling is, is probably not even the appropriate adjective because it, it, it's, it's soul crushing, right. you know, when you're a man and you cannot defend yourself, there's nothing you can do in this, this kid's toying with you, you know, and you don't understand how it happened. So you can't really correct it right away. It takes time. Yeah. So I talked to Gustavo Dantes and we messaged on Instagram after my interview came out with him. And one of my questions was, you know, common misconceptions when jujitsu, you know, especially in the nineties. Uh, and it sounds like, one, he says it wasn't super professional back in the day either. It was more along the lines of you show up, get your ass kicked, and leave. You know what I mean? What Listen, some- there were none, no prof- <laughs> There was zero professionalism. My, uh, this is this is this is true, and you can fact check me with everything I say, but especially this. At the time that I went in, uh, Rodrigo had a fish tank in the very front of the gym. And in that fish tank was what they called a snake, uh, I think a snakehead fish. And it would eat piranhas and he would drop mice in it every day and eat mice. And this oh, is wow. where like, it didn't have any control over the top. So kids could stick their hand down. No. Or, I mean, it was like, <laughs> it, it didn't care. People would come in and they would like be aggressive or they would be like, Hey man, you know, they, they kind of look aggressive and Hey man, I want I want to check this out. And they would just not smile at him. And he'd be like, okay, buddy, let's go. And then it would be like, the guy just gets passed out and choked out and guys would get their arms snapped. And like, there was oh. no concern about liability and lawsuits. And so in terms of, of saying professional, it would be the antithesis of professional. There was zero concern, zero structure. Um, I, I, you know, I think, Gustavo is a super nice dude. I, I like Gustavo a lot. I think he probably was nicer than than my coach was uh, at that time. And and my coach is is not a dumb man. He's a smart man, but he just didn't give a shit. He really didn't care. Right. And and he brought kind of the Brazilian attitude in fighting to the U.S. without an understanding for laws or liability. It just anything goes, man. 
that's that's crazy to me hearing that too. And also, you mentioned that you know, like belts back then were a scarcity. You know, like there wasn't very many blue belts and purple belts. Uh, how long after you started jujitsu did you get promoted to blue? It's a good question. Uh, I would say under two years, um, but all of us at the time, the whole group of guys, were coming from all over the area, and we had you know a bunch of NCAA All American wrestlers, a bunch of oh, Golden wow. Glove boxers, guys with three, four, or five black belts training. So everybody was tough, and everybody in the room competed. Everybody competed in gi jiu jitsu, no gi jiu jitsu, which we called submission wrestling, uh, and NHB or what is the most equivalent to MMA now, right? No holds barred. Um, and in Brazil, they called it Valley Tudo. Um, so at the time, everybody was training hard. Everybody was competing. Everybody was young. Everybody was fit. And so people kind of um, really earned their belts. And even though it took, say, two years to get to blue belt and, you know, and maybe another two years to get to purple, um, it was it was really well earned. Very different than today. Very, very different. Is that something you're concerned about, especially as someone that started so long ago, the watering down of jiu-jitsu? I know that's kind of like a hot topic lately is the watering down of jiu-jitsu. Yeah, I think there's um, there's definitely a watering down of jiu-jitsu. Like people skip past the basics and they know how to do all Great. kinds of crazy stuff and they can do inverted movements, but they can't do basic closed guard movements. So it's definitely changed. Um, but jiu-jitsu as a whole, I think, you know, there's a lot more people doing it. People are able to grow much faster because think about you know, access. And, and I've talked to people about this before, but at the time that I started jujitsu, there was no YouTube, you know, people just started getting emails at that time. That was like, you know, the era where, where normal average everyday humans like, Oh, I got to get this AOL account. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, you had no jujitsu. And then at the time, you know, 96 or seven or whatever it was when the VHS, um, you know, Gracie and action stuff started coming out, people could watch that, but it wasn't interactive and it wasn't super detailed the way things are now. So information is flowing freely, which means that for people that are voracious consumers of details surrounding jujitsu and who can figure out how to uh, synthesize or amalgamate data where they can actually put it into use, it makes sense why they would grow quicker. The only problem is that I, I think it's less useful as a whole today than it was back then. Back then, I think most of the people training could do gi, no gi, and MMA or, or no holds barred. I think you see less of that now. Guys are getting more specific games. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the time, we didn't have personal trainers uh, for fighters. We'd have dietitians for fighters. Guys weren't getting stem cell injections. Guys... <laughs> you know, weren't doing what you see now in IBJJF, which is, you know, winstrel and, and growth hormone and testosterone yeah. and all these cocktails. I'm not saying that that wasn't available, but it just wasn't the norm at the time. And and I, I don't even know whether that's good or bad. It's just a different time. So I, I probably don't have much of a dog in the fight of was it better then or is it better now? I think jujitsu is growing in some components or facets jujitsu is getting much better and you you can learn or see a lot more but in other ones people are getting lost in in the shuffle and there's too much and they can't process it because they're not taking down this this path of growth right so uh, i i can see both sides to it um i wouldn't i wouldn't fight over any of it i mean in in my side for the guys that are around me, you know, we're going to take it step by step still. We're going to look at it. We're going to analyze it, see how it fits into our game, try it for a little while. If it doesn't fit, get rid of it. We bring something else new in. So that's my, my particular take on it. What was instruction like when you first started versus <laughs> now? Obviously, when, you know, yeah. we talked about like you didn't smile at your professor, so you were getting choked mm -hmm. unconscious. Like what was the whole class like? So we had, um, 
what they call technique classes on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday were sparring. And the way that it worked out was Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, what would happen is you'd come in and you do a 30 to 45 minute warm up. And then after you got done with it, I mean, just ridiculous at, at the end of the warm up when you're smoked is when now you start training. And so the next phase would be like a hundred arm bars in the mount, a hundred arm oh, bars in the gosh. guard, a hundred triangles or, or, you know, whatever. Um, and then when that was done, he would show a technique, one technique and one variation to that technique. And that was like, you know, a 90 minute window. Um, so it was much more simple, much more basic, but the difference was that everybody in the room could apply the basic techniques very well under pressure. Right. Um, and when you look at techniques and training and all this stuff, you know, it really comes down to, can you do it under pressure? Are you pressure testing it? Not just, you know, looking at the move, knowing the move and drilling it with somebody who's almost limp on you. Um, you know, and at the time, everybody could do it, literally everybody. So we didn't do much, but what we did do, we were very good at. It's, I noticed nowadays that, uh, ecological, uh, testing or ecological training kind of has been taken forefront. Uh, Josh McKinney calls it designated winner. Uh, Greg Souter calls it the ecological way, right? So it's where you have the designated winner. Someone, someone is doing the technique and then you slowly ramp up the intensity, right? To like you mentioned, pressure test it that way. If, you know, being a bad UK and you're just going limp arm on people, isn't going to help anyone. Right. Was I've never heard of anyone really talk about, was there anything similar to that? you know, back in the late nineties, early two thousands, or was it kind of like you mentioned, just lots of reps and then, and then go into yeah. this bar. I, I, I like Josh and I, I agree with a lot of what he's saying. Um, it wasn't defined. A lot of moves you have to understand didn't have names. People knew right. how to do things, but they didn't call them specific names. And another thing that happened is like designated winner. Yeah, we did designated winner. Let me explain how it happens. Uh, you go with a guy smaller than you who's not athletic, and you're you're going slower, and you're trying these moves with less you know resistance, and you're getting what you are going after. You are the guy kind of medium. You're getting a little bit more resistance, uh. and he's a medium level. You go so that exact thing played out. It just played out in a different way but that's the same as designated winner it's just not with one person and we're agreeing to do it this way it's it's a designated winner with people at lower skill levels lower physical abilities uh less willpower um and that's how it naturally unfolded so i, I can't say that you know what josh is talking about not only didn't happen may, maybe the way he's doing it now cuts off some time it shaves off some time and it's it's more um intentional but it, of course that happened uh, that's how people get better yeah, it, it's it's super interesting for me, too, because we were definitely more our, our academy. We started brand new. Uh, I think Cody was the highest ranking person when we first opened the academy. He was a four stripe blue belt. Everyone else was white belts. And someone is it reminds me of like when people talk about blue belts back in the day. Uh, we were so brand new to it. We saw a guy with like one stripe on his white belt and he would smash us like it was just like and he was like a 17 year old kid. Right. And uh so when we first started, we did a lot of the basics and just the uh, ideology of how we taught each other and our approach to it has already vastly changed in the five years that we've been in open an academy. Now we definitely go more along the lines of uh, theoretical situations, you know what I mean, which helps a lot. But I, I feel like when it comes to teaching concepts and theories and stuff like that, there there is a, a point where I still feel like you need a 
a base understanding of jujitsu in order to even understand the most basic concept. You know what I mean? Like, and that's where uh, I would love to get your opinion on it. Like beginners classes or something like that. Like, do you, do you agree with people going through like a beginner's class or kind of just throwing them in with gen pop and just straight into a normal class? No, first of all, people in jujitsu, we talk collectively as if everybody learns the same way. And the right. truth of the matter is no human learns the exact same way. There are humans that are more inclined uh, visually, uh, kinesthetically, auditorily. And so that person also puts those pieces together in a certain way, right? And so in, in my realm, we do a lot of work with information. Um, what we do is we collect data points and then we put those data points together and that creates information. And then we attach the pieces of information and things that give context to it and that creates intelligence. And then we use that intelligence to drive our decisions. So our decisions based on intelligence, not just random ideas. So the same thing has to happen in jujitsu. So I have to understand where the danger can come from before I start defending against her or before I start attacking, I have to know, you know, where your weaknesses are, where my strengths are, how do I exploit your weaknesses while utilizing my strengths? So I have to understand that. And, and I have to understand how the body works. And I talked to someone else about this recently, but you know, the jujitsu is science and art, right? How your body moves is science, but the way that you trick people, the way that you put your moves together, that's art. And so people, Everywhere you go, learn or see stuff differently. You'll see people that will grow really quickly with one style of instructor, but with another one, they'll stagnate or vice versa. And that doesn't matter who it is. It could be my instructor. It could be me. Um, I've had guys who I say, you know what? I think you're better. You're more suited to this guy. Go train with him because he teaches 10 million techniques and he likes all this abstract stuff. I'm not that guy. So I'm not going to be your guy. Whereas another person, you know, they're going to resonate more with this, this structure, this process. Um, so I, th I think it's really dependent upon the individual and the instructor. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I, one thing that also happens is we hit these, when we first start, I usually tell people, I'm like, Hey, the, the first six months, you're going to, you're going to make such a drastic change in who you are. You're going to hit these milestones where you survive, you know, against someone mm -hmm. an entire round without being submitted or you get submitted less or whatever. Those first six months is really that that's to me, the six month is like the first major milestone. If you make it six months, you're a completely different person. You would probably absolutely destroy the person that you were when you first walked in. Right. What, what major milestones in your jujitsu journey have impacted you the most and like made you who you are today because of them? Um, it's a good question. Um, I, I, I think that a big part of it came from the way that we trained, um, not just what we trained, but, but interestingly, you know, you reference six months and whether it's number of reps or time or how much an, you know, an average person can take in, in that period and then kind of actually process, there's something for most people at six months where they really are able to understand it, process it and apply it. And, and, you know, I, I don't know how you were, but me and a lot of the people that I was around, you know, we were dreaming about it. We were yeah. sleeping in our off time. We were daydreaming about it. And, and that went on for more than six months, but at six months, it's really a kind of a critical period. And like you said, if you look at your former self six months earlier, you know, you would just play with that person. Um, you, you would. And and that's true for anybody that, that, you know, trains three or four times a week. And for guys that train six or seven days a week, it's a whole nother level. But um, for me, in terms of milestones, uh, I think one is that the very first step, the, the very first step was the hardest one by far for me, you know, to be 
good at something to be recognized, to be respected in a realm and in a realm of tough guys, and then go into a room and get played with by a kid. <laughs> I, I couldn't wrap my head around that. So the first thing, you know, was it was fixing my head. Like, okay, you got to keep going back and taking this until you figure out what that magic is and you can apply that magic to him. So that's the first milestone was, was, was one, realizing that I wasn't as strong as I thought I was, mm-hmm. realizing that I was weak and that there was something I needed to learn. And then two was taking that punishment over that initial month, two months, three months, whatever it was, and just keep sucking it up and, and kind of... Uh, getting a, a really strong ego check, right? Really, really strong ego check. And then the next one was like, I can endure more physical pain than I thought. Then the next one is, you know, I can actually uh, not have to worry about this guy. Now I'm going to start going after this guy. I'm not just defending, but I'm attacking. Um, and then the next one is like, uh, I have an expectation of myself that I'm not going to let anybody beat me. And it doesn't always work out that way, obviously, but you know, your confidence grows and, uh, you know, you, you become actually proficient in that thing that you're doing. And it, it really changes your mindset and how you're wired. Um, in my case and all the guys that came up with me, you know, they're very, very strong guys mentally. Yeah. I think you have to be mentally strong to do jujitsu because if you're not, you're, you're not going to last, you know, we, we face so much adversity in just every single time we walk through the door you have to build that mental fortitude you have to be able to understand like you mentioned you're gonna suck no matter who you are before you walk in that door it doesn't matter because you're a completely different person when you step on the mats um and the real you comes out you know what i mean we hear about it all the time the real you comes out it reminds me of like boot camp when i went to boot camp i stepped off the (laughs) i stepped off the after getting yelled at by someone i thought was an officer who was just like a e5 who was yelling at me in my face to go get lined up inside boot camp. And I was like, it was a, a rude awakening. I was like, man, I am freaking no one to these people. It doesn't matter who I was the second I got on that bus or I got off that plane. Um, once I got into boot camp, it was like, you're no one. They tried, they completely broke me down. I never cried as an adult until I went to boot camp. <laughs> I cried at boot camp the first time I got a letter from my dad. I didn't even like my dad growing up, but I got the first letter from my dad in boot camp and I bawled like a baby. You know what I mean? It made me start realizing who I actually am as a person. Um, and it's the, I mean, jujitsu doesn't go that deep for me personally, because it was just a completely different experience, but it does, it does make you build that mental fortitude. Like you have to be able to accept loss. You have to be able to accept being humbled the 16 year old kid smashing you. We have a, we have a 16 year old girl that's a blue belt and she like absolutely destroys me all the time. Still to this day, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like as a Marine, what, what was, what was harder getting the ego check when you went to boot camp or when you walked into the doors of jujitsu? I expected it more in the Marine Corps. I didn't expect as much in jujitsu. I think there are a lot of correlations between jujitsu and in the Marine Corps in particular. Um, but I think there are more correlations between jujitsu and life in general, every aspect, every walk of life. And, and like you had noted, you know, there's a, a really strong correlation between jujitsu people because jujitsu requires, you know, you to keep struggling and fighting to, to attain what it is that you're after some type of control, some type of position or, or submission. And even when you lose in the, 
the buzzer goes off, you got to start again. Here's another round. Oh, here's another round. Here's another round. And and that was another thing at our initial school. Uh, you know, Rodrigo didn't let anybody sit out any rounds. Oh, you had gosh. no water breaks. You had no sitting out. You know, it was either a 60-minute class or a 90-minute class. And you were rolling the whole time. And so it was six minutes on, 30 seconds off. Six minutes on, 30 seconds off. Um, and and so that forged a different mindset. Because even if you didn't want to be there, even if you didn't want to have the next bite, you didn't have a choice. And so you were forced to kind of suck it up and, and get in there and do it. And so I, th- I think I think that's a um, fairly common story, at least with, with early jujitsu. Um, but, but I think jujitsu has more life lessons. Marine Corps is a little bit more intense in the short term, but life lessons, I, I see correlations in everything, you know, literally everything. Yeah. It's definitely helped me out be a way more level-headed person. Um, I just talked about this to, I don't remember who, maybe I was on my, uh, someone else's podcast, but you know, before jujitsu, I would have road rage. I would, people cut me <laughs> off in lines or whatever. I would be so like, I would be so hot headed. You know what I mean? But now it doesn't to me like it doesn't matter anymore. You know what I mean? My like Jocko talks about it. If I were to be in a situation where I would have to fight someone or something like that, my first instinct is to not get in the fight. It's just to get away as as fast as possible. Especially nowadays, people are crazy. You see it all the time. Like yeah. people are not. You don't even know who trains anymore because it's so popular. Yeah. You know, yeah, we're and, getting back to action consequence, what you're talking about right now, right? Like you realize there's a consequence for you doing something and you yeah. realize how bad it can be and, and you think through it and don't do it. And and the other thing, you know, that you mentioned, you mentioned Gustavo. And uh, one of the things that he asked me was, you know, how would you be different right now if you didn't come up in the time you came up and if yeah. you hadn't competed? And I thought for a second to answer his question. I didn't just immediately answer. I thought for a second thought. I would be a completely different human if I didn't train during the era that I did. And in particular, if I didn't compete and literally um, that was during COVID and literally I went back to competing like a month later uh, because I I realized what a significant difference that it made in, in my life and in my mindset and, you know, how I saw things and dealt with things. And so jujitsu people are, are a different breed. And I think we all know that. And that's why we kind of have a certain level of respect for each other, even when we act like idiots sometimes. Yeah. You, you mentioned competing. You are a, uh, black belt, national champ, Pan Ams, uh, medalist, um, at, competing at such a high level can you go a little bit deeper into what it does for your mindset as a person and in your line of duty? Yeah. Um, a big part of, of what we do is we deal with problems. We try to prevent them just like in jujitsu. You don't want them to get into certain positions. And so a big part of my job in the protection realm is to create all these plans and create this structure to prevent a bad thing from happening. And then if it does start to happen to, to leave, to evacuate. Um, and then the last thing we do is actually fight, but um, in jiu-jitsu with respect to competition, for me personally, um, it's not just the competition. It's definitely not winning a medal because I don't, I don't get much from that. But what I do get a lot from is going in and being in a room um, full of people, thousands of people. And you mentioned like American nationals. I'm going to compete in American nationals as a black belt. You know, I've got 50, 60, 70, 80 guys, whatever it is in my division. And um and the numbers now are totally different than they used to be. You used to have like 10 guys in a division and be stacked, right? Now it's, you can't even count. Like I, I, Masters Worlds, I think I had 84 guys in my bracket. Wow. That's, 
you know, think about that master four black belt. Like how is it that this small division has so many guys? So it's, it's a massive sport, but the big thing is you walk in the room full of testosterone, you can feel it, you can cut it with a knife. Um, you know, you're dealing with your own emotions. You know, you, you want to perform well. Um, you know, you're having an adrenaline dump. You have to manage that. You have to manage like the fatigue that sets in on your muscles when you use too much strength when you're fighting. Um, and you know, we tend to make people uh, better than they are. You know, you're going with a guy and you have this expectation that he's this, this monster that has these special skills. And, and the reality is they don't, they're just another human. They're just another body, but you have to learn how to manage those emotions. You have to know when to warm up. If you warm up too soon, you start warming up early, you're going to be tired, fatigued from it. If you don't warm up early enough, you're going to blow your lungs out right away in the first match. Um, you know, managing your, your breathing, managing, you know, how you're thinking before the fight, managing how you're thinking during the fight, managing, you know, what level of, of resistance you give to certain things, how much pressure you put in certain areas, knowing that maybe you have three or four more fights after that one. Um, you know, you know, you're going to have lactic acid buildup and, you know, maybe you've got the best guy, uh, in a really short period of time and you need to be ready for that. So it changed the way I looked at things. It changed the way that I felt about things. And, and really probably the greatest gift is it's just a great way to learn how to manage emotions and manage your mind and the tricks that, that human minds can play on you. So has your jujitsu training, you were, you were in law, law enforcement for a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. Has your jujitsu training and like your law enforcement, well, actually kind of like your, all your martial arts training, cause you have, a black belt in, uh, uh, um, oh my God, Japanese jiu-jitsu, uh, Kempo, right? Is it, is it Kempo, right? It and is, then, yeah. you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, all these martial arts and your law enforcement background, how has it influenced the way that one, you recruit people for your job now, and then two, how you, how you train and handle all these situations? Um, well, those, those are two very different questions. So the first one with respect to recruiting people, um, I'm, I'm looking at the person now before I was looking at their background more. I, yeah. I don't care about their background as much. I'm looking at how they think, how they behave, how they adapt to environments, um, much more than I used to, you know, if they had a good resume and, and I got along with them, that was good enough. And that's no longer the case. I, I look for very specific things in people, um, characteristics, traits. Um, and then I look at things to see, you know, how, long they've been behaving that way or, or, or how long they can kind of endure certain conditions or situations. Um, so that's, that's a very different thing. Then on the other front with respect to law enforcement and military and fighting and all that stuff, I, I think it's important to have those backgrounds so that you can understand, um, more nuanced, complex details that are important. Um, before I was in law enforcement, I was training law enforcement mm -hmm. in, uh, combatives and in, in what we call defensive tactics, DT. And I didn't understand a lot of things. I thought I understood. I understood a lot about fighting. I understood a lot about the body. Um, but I didn't understand a lot about the scenarios they faced. I didn't understand any of the laws, whether it was federal law or state statutes um, with respect to use of force. I didn't understand agency policies. Um, I didn't understand some of the constraints they faced. You know, luckily for me, coming from the Marine Corps, I did understand about fighting and gear. That was helpful. Uh, but they have a lot of different um parameters that they have to operate within that if you don't know about those things specifically, you can do them a disservice very easily. Right. And so having gone through that myself, I now know and understand all the things that I didn't know before. And, um, oddly enough, you, you gave me a nice little segue there, right? 
Um, I have a book that's coming out um, this summer and it's called Underpinning. And Underpinning looks at exactly those things. So if I'm a black belt in jujitsu and I've never been a Leo before, it gives me all the tools, all the mm. things that I need to understand in order to be of service to Leos in a good way, right? It gives us all the stuff we don't learn in jujitsu about what it, uh, you know a cop has to deal with on the street. And it's really important. And, and the only way that, that I was able to find that out or understand that was through doing it, through going through academy, through working on the street, through working on a special response team and dealing with these scenarios in, you know, uh, it's easy to go in and say, here are some techniques, but to not have the context that surrounds it, it's not so good. So thank you for that segue. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. I saw it comes out this year. So I was, that's a, I didn't see what it was about, but I saw that you've written five books and I was like, man, I was like, that's a lot of information. I don't think I could write one book. I don't think I'm smart enough and give, have enough information in my head about anything to write a book. <laughs> you know, what's funny is that anybody can do it if they want to do it. Number one, just like jujitsu. And, and the weird thing, just like jujitsu is you take a piece of information and you build on it and you take another piece of information that's connecting, you build on it. And then you have this thing that, that, um, you know, is a collection of information in a specific realm that you can present. And, and hopefully if, if you do it right, and if the right people buy it, you know, you can enrich somebody's life or make their lives a little bit better, or a little bit uh, easier. Yeah. I was, I was like, um, I do a lot of research on podcasting, marketing and stuff like that, obviously, because I'm trying to build this podcast and stuff. But one thing they talk about is like, like offering people, you know, like a free ebook or something like that. And I was like, mm -hmm. man, I could, Maybe maybe you may you're kind of like inspiring me. Maybe I can write a small like fifty page ebook or something like man, that, man. Like, <laughs> I, I think it, I think you should. I really do, and I, I think you should. If there's something that you know that the average person doesn't know, which there is, you know, you helping other people kind of get to that level where you're at, you're shortcutting it for them by giving them the key variables that they need to understand in the equation. And so I think it's valuable. It's it's a learning process for you too, right? So you're writing the book, but you're learning about that process. And then you're starting to refine the things you want to present. And you have to understand them better when you're you're presenting it. Just like teaching right. jujitsu, you learn a lot by teaching, right? You learn about how people see stuff, how people process stuff, what people's strengths are, what people's weaknesses are. And then you have to be able to teach to those different types of people and and it helps you it serves you and it serves them at the same time so i would advocate for you doing like a free pdf book you could do like a, a 20 or 30 page document like a primer on podcasting and i'll tell you what right now in this day and age you know most people aren't reading books and they're not watching the news they're listening to podcasts very true and it's it's hot and so you know you doing something like that is is a big deal and then that's also your contribution to the industry that you work within so i think that that would be a good idea and, it, and i don't think it's that hard i think it's 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 much easier than you're making it well thanks todd i, I appreciate that everyone at home be on the lookout for travis's book <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, hey, i kind of want to jump in. back to you uh to your law enforcement about uh, jiu-jitsu and law enforcement how do you feel about seeing i mean they're they're everywhere now people mm -hmm. training law enforcement and whatnot that have never done law enforcement how do you feel about that um kind of most famously gracie combatives or or whatnot obviously yeah. henner's never been a cop but i'm sure he has yeah. a lot of influence from other police officers how do you feel about you know non-police officers teaching police officers and stuff like this well i i think that 
they can teach people something. Um, I think jujitsu is a valuable tool. The problem is that the connecting parts are missing. So you can teach them the thing, but then it's on that person, on that cop who does understand the nuances to try to find a way to adapt it for that specific environment, right? Um, each agency has their own general orders, right? The agency policies, which, which gives them guidelines and defines kind of which types of force are uh, appropriate for specific situations. Um, and then you have laws and, 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 you know, cases that will determine, you know, what is objectively reasonable based on the totality of the circumstances. Um, and without understanding it, uh, not just from a legal perspective, but from a day-to-day -day perspective, what happens, you know, what am I going to have to do? How am I going to go hands-on? When can I go hands-on? What are the physical indicators? You know, what situations am I likely to be in? Okay, I know that I got to put handcuffs on somebody. I know that I got to put them in a patrol car. Is it going to be me alone? Is it going to be 10 of them? Is it going to be, you know, me and a partner and one of them? Uh, am I going to be, you know, in a rural environment and I'm dealing with grass and gravel? Am I going to be on a city street with, with concrete? and bricks and things like that? Am I going to be going through glass windows? And am I going to be, you know, am I fighting on the side of the highway because uh, I'm highway patrol? I think those factors are really significant. And, and the problem is, and I'm not saying guys that are black belts in jiu-jitsu can't teach cops. I think they can. I think they should. I just think they need to be more informed than they are. I think that will be a better service for law enforcement. And what I'm saying is it will help them to provide a service that is immediately actionable for the end user, which is the street cop, right? Um, when you think about it, um, you know, most jujitsu guys, and this is not everybody, because, you know, we both served and, and we know that things are different in the service than they are in the civilian world, but most people are not training jujitsu on concrete, number one. Number two, most people, when they're training jujitsu, are not training with a partner who's trying to kill them, literally. Who, by the way, just came out of prison and has been lifting weights for the last 10 years and dealing with violent, aggressive people. Uh, most people that we're dealing with on the mats, right, when we get to a certain point, like let's say unconscious, they stop, they let go. If we tap, they let go. That's not how it works on the street. Most of the time when we're training in jujitsu, even MMA, we're not wearing a 30 or 40 or 50 pound kit. Yeah. We don't have all these obstructions. We don't have all this extra weight. We don't have all these features that snag on things. You know, when you don't include that in the training, when that's omitted from training, you, you have a lot of uh, areas where certain moves won't work, where things will get stuck, um, and, and it doesn't translate well. And I know it's not a popular thing to say because every jujitsu black belt wants to say, no, 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 this is it, and I know because I do this. Like, That's great. I appreciate your opinion, but you've never done the job, and you don't yeah. clearly understand these nuances. And the problem is you don't know what you don't know, yep. much like the day that I walked into a jujitsu school where I didn't know jujitsu. And I thought I was going to go in there and do this stuff. It's the same exact situation. Then I walk in and I'm like, oh shit, there's a lot I don't know. And now I got to start learning all these other things. And so I, I think jujitsu is huge. I think it's great for law enforcement. I, I think it's the best martial art for law enforcement. I think it answers a lot of problems. I think the way that it's getting taught is not optimal. And I think that the book will shed some light on the areas that the instructors need to understand. Um, and, and I, I would hope that it helps law enforcement as a whole. I, I see a lot of times, uh, I follow police posts. I think it's police posts mm -hmm. on Instagram and they're always posting, you know, big gigantic captions along with like scenarios on when cops, uh, do good and do bad, obviously, which mm -hmm. is, I think very important because you want to see both sides of it. Cause there's learning Absolutely. on both sides of it. Cops and are human. So you're going to get both. 
Yeah. And I, I read it. I'm not a law enforcement, but I like reading it because I like knowing from a cop's perspective what could have been done differently and what was done, right? Because Monday, Monday quarterback, right? Everyone's going to have an opinion. But if you've never been in the situation, then you, you don't know exactly what, what's going on. But I do hear from people that do teach seminars for like self-defense and stuff like that. The hard part is getting not necessarily the police on board, but getting the departments on board for hosting these events or bringing people in to train outside of the minimum mandatory training. Um, how do you how do you guys train for your, your company? Do you guys constantly train like multiple times a year to stay fresh on the new stuff? Normally for the groups that I, I work with, uh, we're there a couple times a year and we work with a couple of state and a couple of federal agencies. We don't work with 50 or 60 or 70 entities and we're not trying to make this cookie cutter thing that we just mass produce because we're working to kind of know how that agency functions and how they do business and what the, the personalities are like. Um, the challenges that you're mentioning are related to one budget, right? So yeah. a law enforcement agency has a budget of X and then they have to do certain things. So there are hot topics in, in use of force, like duty to intervene is one where, you know, you are an officer and you see someone using excessive force, you have a responsibility to go and stop that, right? Um, duty to render medical aid is another one that's a hot topic where, you know, if I shoot a guy after I shoot him and he's no longer a threat to me, I need to go over there and minister aid to him, uh, medical aid, as long as it's safe to do so. So I need to go over there and, you know, uh, patch him up however best I can. Um, there are a lot of different areas that are outside of what you think of in terms of use of force that need to be taught. So the agency only has so much time and so much money to give officers training. And uh, unfortunately, we're in a very litigious society where agencies, cities, departments get sued, and they're really, really hyper aware of these liabilities. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the, the law enforcement profession is, is a dangerous profession. You have to learn how to fight. And you have to learn how to deal with violent people. Um, but not all agencies want to spend a lot of time and money on that. That's the reality of, of the current situation in law enforcement. Very political. When, when people do get to show up for, for your trainings, how, how, how do they uh, perceive it or kind of like interact with it when they first get there? Is it kind of like, oh, man, I got to be here for this training or is everyone super excited mm -hmm. to, to do it? No, we're, I'm fortunate. I'm very fortunate uh, because I work with a couple groups that um, are motivated and dedicated. But on the front end, before they sign up for it, we explain to them that it's physically grueling. They're going to be tired. They're going to be worn out. It's not a gentleman's course, meaning like a lot of law enforcement courses, you sit through a course, they sign off on it, and you're good to go. You've got your post hours or whatever your certifying body is. We don't do that. We don't believe in that. Like you're, you're going to get tired. You're going to get worn out. Uh, you know, eventually somebody's going to get hurt in the class because people put out physically hard that, that aren't used to doing it. Things happen. So if you put 100, 200 people through it, you're, you're going to have some people fall out. So we warn them on the front end. Uh, we take all the precautions that we can to to stretch out, to warm up, to talk them through it, to kind of you know uh, ratchet it up slowly. Um, and we we try to identify people who are not suited for it. Um, the truth of the matter is not every law enforcement officer is a warrior. Um, while they should be, the truth is they're not. Some are, some aren't. And, uh, and I think, you know, we do our best to try and identify, you know, who that is. And, and we try to work with people as best we can and give them some type of skills. Um, but I think right now, a big thing you see is just guys getting pumped through courses um, in mass. And um, I'm not, I'm not a believer in that.
I saw a video of Tim Kennedy, uh, his sheepdog course that, you know, private citizens can go learn with him. And man, that looked so freaking intense. Like I was watching it and, you know, they're just everyday moms, dads, people that just want to learn how to defend themselves, get better situational awareness. And like people are going blue in the face because they've never experienced, you know, someone trying to choke them or, you know, jujitsu and whatnot. And yeah. It's like a big eye opener. I, I'm like you mentioned earlier. I experienced that in my first my first class when I, I had just got the Navy. I was in the best shape of my life. Uh, I was like lifting all the time, super strong. Thought I was physically fit, and I get on the mat, and that 17 year old one stripe white belt uh, dominates me. I literally think to myself in the middle of the round, I'm like, if I were to get in a fight on the street, I would literally die if the person had any kind of training. Like they would just manhandle me. There would be my strength means absolutely nothing. I think that's a big, a big awareness that a lot of people don't have. You know what I mean? Like they just they've never yeah. faced that before in their day to day life, and it's like it is. It's a scary thing. Yeah, when you say it's an eye opener, you're absolutely right. And when we talk about training police, um, you know, we're training them for very violent life or death encounters. We're not training them for something else. So the part that we deal with is a very nasty thing. And so we try to control it and, and we don't want injuries. That's, that's not good for anybody. Um, but you have to have some exposure. You don't want to have your first exposure to this on the street. You want the first exposure in training with people who are, who are not going to let it get hopefully to you know, that degree. But think about this. Imagine if I said, Hey, um, I want to be a UFC champion. Um, let's, let's work. We're going to do jujitsu, but I don't want you to touch me. Okay. So we're going to do jujitsu. Don't touch me. Um, we're going to do Muay Thai, but, but don't punch me in the face. We're going to do this. And that's how I'm going to train for the UFC. You would laugh at me because that doesn't work. When you have violent encounters, all of these nice rules about touchy feely, they don't work anymore. And then when we go out there, what happens? You have these people who are afraid to get hit, who've never had that experience. They have it for the first time. What's their human instinct to go to the gun, to go to the gun? When they could solve it another way, they go to the gun faster because they feel more threatened much yeah. sooner than guys who are used to this kind of violence, right? Guys that are used to being exposed to violence. Um, you know, I think we're creating a lot of problems that, that we're seeing right now. And it's unfortunate. Um, if, if you're going to operate in a realm where violence is going to come to you eventually, right? Because you're getting a call. You're getting a call for service. You don't get to pick and choose what that call for service. Oh, it's, it's a violent call. I'm not taking that one. It doesn't work that way. Right. You know, you get a call for service, you respond. And, and you don't know what you get till you get there. And when you get there and the violence is on, you're in the middle of it. And you're tasked with solving a problem. That means you have to survive first. So you have to survive the violent encounter. And then you have to figure out a way to thrive or win that fight. Um, the only way to do that, in my estimate, is through training and hard training, smart training, um, doing it the way things work in the environments that things typically happen in. And um, you know, in my experience personally, I haven't found a lot of streets happen, uh, street fights happen on mats. Um, I haven't found that they happen in geese or or even in, in MMA type gear. Nobody wears gloves. Um, it's just it's not realistic. So we take precautions, but we also have to train some of that stuff away because it creates these training scars that don't help me. They don't help the officer. Um, and a lot of people today, they're so PC, they don't want to say the truth. They're afraid of hurting their business. They're afraid of hurting their agency or their relationship with an agency. Um, 
And that's the truth. The truth is that we need to start training for what it is that the officers are facing and training in a way that prepares them for success. That's, that's the bottom line. Yeah, you mentioned it in there. And uh, one of our my la- uh, previous guests, Aaron Janetti, he, he does like self-defense stuff, mm-hmm. knife concepts. Mm-hmm. And he, he mentions, you know, police officers or really anyone you're gonna you don't you don't rise to the occasion you fall to your basic uh, the, your training right so if you're always yeah. training pulling your gun then in a high like you mentioned high stressful situation that's going to be the first thing you, you fall back on you mentioned that jujitsu is probably the best martial art for law enforcement what do you think about jujitsu makes it the best for law enforcement uh, in my opinion, the reason that jiu-jitsu is the best for law enforcement is that it works very well starting soft, and it goes the full scale, right? So you can go from soft, empty hand techniques all the way to lethal force, literally the full gamut, right? Jiu-jitsu has all of those solutions in it. So it's not just hard striking, right? You, you can deal with people, you can manipulate people, and you can literally change where they're standing or where they're sitting or how they're moving with soft open hand techniques. That's great. And at the same time, if you're dealing with somebody in, in a circumstance that would be justified to use lethal force, and that's what you choose to use as a level of force, you have the ability to do that. So I don't think that that's true with a lot of martial arts, hard styles, which I love and respect Muay Thai. I absolutely love Muay Thai, but that's not the best. It's a great uh, accoutrement, something to accompany, uh, but it's not the best art, in my opinion, because it doesn't scale that full spectrum the way that, that jiu-jitsu does. So that's that's my opinion. And, and you know, when you talk about Aaron, for example, Aaron starts really slow with simple concepts, and they drill those simple concepts, and then they change the environment, and then they add a little speed to it. And so the way that I'm talking about training is similar to the way that he's doing it, right? Very similar. So um, Aaron, another good guy. You know, the references that you have for these podcasts are really good guys. <laughs> I, I, I like all of them. Uh- Hey, I appreciate that. I try. I try to. I try to make sure that I, I, you know, vet the people that come on the show as much as possible because, you know, I like you mentioned, anyone can put anything on a piece of paper or send you an Instagram message saying, "Hey, this is this is my accolades," and you're like, "Yeah." Uh, then you do some research and you're like, "I can't find anything on this person," and so you kind of have yeah. to take their word for it. But like, luckily, uh, um, a lot of people have like yourself, uh, Aaron, uh, Gustavo. All these people have a lot of background and history within the community, so it's it's nice talking to them because you know, it's no one wants to bring someone on and you're like talking to them and you know, jujitsu guys know you're like, Hmm, I don't really, I don't really know if this guy knows what he's talking about. Wait a about. second. <laughs> it's like rolling with a fake black belt. You're like, I don't really know if this is good. <laughs> and then in my fifth year is where I got my orange belt. <laughs> what? What? Yeah. yeah. So, um, but what, one topic that I talked about, uh, previously too, is like chokes versus joints and I would love, or joint locks. I would love to know your opinion because you, you know, obviously law enforcement protection stuff like that. Do you prefer when, uh, you're applying jujitsu, whether on or off the mat, do you prefer joint locks or chokes? Well, uh, let me, let me back up because you're going to get people all worked up over this. So in law enforcement, they are not permitted to do chokes. Um, they have vascular neck restraints. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
with compression and without compression. Um, so they talk about it differently. You know, the big thing obviously is blood versus air, right? Um, so, you know, you can hold somebody without choking them or without applying a, a neck restraint. Um, you know, where you hold it will depend on if it's an airway choke or if it's blood restriction. So you have to make those distinctions now. You can't talk about without doing that when you talk about law enforcement. But clearly the most effective is going to be some type of neck restraint, right? Because what you're going to do is you're going to shut off the computer and then there's no long-term damage if you apply appropriately, right? For the appropriate amount of time. With joint locks, when you're dealing with people on bath salts and, you know, PCP and things like that, they're not going to stop the fight. Maybe you can use it to control them or to get them going into a specific direction, but it's not going to stop the fight. Um, you know, I've had many situations where people's arms were bent 90 degrees the wrong way and they didn't stop fighting. Now, I'm sure the next day that didn't feel good or the next week or month or whatever, but it didn't stop them from fighting. If they don't feel pain, that doesn't really help. Um, like I said, it works for guiding people, for moving people, for manipulating the body. But in terms of uh, what we would consider like a submission or to get people to stop moving or doing something, it, it, it's not the best option, unfortunately. So is that go for you? Like when you're actually jujitsu versus jujitsu, like what's your, what's your a game when it comes to, to rolling? Uh, not law enforcement. Not law enforcement. Uh, we're going to go ahead and cut this completely different. <laughs> we're talking about jujitsu. Talking about pure jujitsu uh, here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. My my game. My game's heavily focused on chokes. Oh, okay. Heavily focused on chokes. Um, because I believe in them and I know they work. Because they worked for me in tournaments. They worked for me, uh, you know, in MMA. They worked for me on the street. They, you know, they've worked over and over and over again. And so, you know, when you have a a a high degree of success in multiple environments, you know, it wouldn't make sense for me to discard those things. Those are the best tools that I found in fighting, you know? Yeah. It chokes are great. I, I prefer, I probably cause I suck at chokes. Like I used to have a pretty good darse, you know what I mean? But like, uh, as a bigger guy, the Kimura is like always there for me. Right. Cause I can kind of like just force it if I need to. But, uh, John, my, my old co-host, uh, he talked about like when we first started jujitsu, he always he didn't know what a blood choke was. He thought everything was airway. So he got put in a rear naked choke and he's like, That's fine, I'll just hold my breath for a while until the, the person <laughs> lets go. And then he started seeing stars. He's like, Oh, yeah, I better tap. And he realized like, what's going on here? Right? Like <laughs> it's like I'm surprised. Yeah, surprise. Like that's not actually how it works. So but <laughs> But no, yeah, I I definitely like joints, uh, joint locks, not joints. Jesus, don't don't say that. I work for the government. Yeah, that was pretty uh, <laughs> slip there, wasn't it? No, man, I like joint locks. Uh, it was it was crazy to see. I did a poll, and like most people agree, chokes are the way to go. And the thing I always talk about or here is I think Hickson said it is you. There's no tough or Helio said it. There's no Ali, tough, Alio yeah, said it. There's yeah. no tough guys when it comes to a choke. You know what I mean? Like everyone, everyone goes out. So Helio uh, said a lot of really simple things that seem like common sense, but uh, apparently were not. And and he was right. He was really really right about all of those things. Um, and it takes a, a small guy to know that, right? Um, you know when that's the only real option that you have. Uh, you learn very quickly that that's going to be your go-to. So I, I think that's that's the case. Now, for example, you talk about Kimuras. 
Kimura has an advantage in a lot of different scenarios, um, namely cuffing, because that's kind of the arm behind the back for cuffing. And then there are some weapon retention techniques where a Kimura is really good, uh, where people are fighting you for a gun. Um, so there are points in time and in, in, in these points of transition that that's a great technique and you utilize the body control of joint locks. It's just not applied the same way as it is in jiu-jitsu with respect to a submission and getting a tap. Because when you talk about street context, there's no tapping. It doesn't work that way, right? So either you have them restrained with, with flex cuffs or cuffs or something like that, um, or you have to render them unconscious if, if it's legally justified. When it comes to all your martial arts, that you have besides jujitsu, what which one has influenced you the most in in, in your life um, besides jujitsu? Um, it's it's not even close. I mean, you, you can't compare it to Brazilian jujitsu for me. Um, Muay Thai, I love. I'm not great at it, but I love doing it. It's a great workout. I think it complements jujitsu perfectly. Um, I'm a huge fan of knees and elbows, and and they are beautiful. Uh, you know the way that Muay Thai applies them is unbelievable. I think in my personal life, probably my Japanese jujitsu teacher, um, was a massive influence. He was a Marine. He was a cop. Um, oh. he was, he was a fighter. He was a tough guy. Um, very straightforward, very, con uh, no nonsense, common sense, uh, approach. Um, so I was more probably influenced by his style of teaching and his example in terms of leading in life, um, than the art. But, um, you know, in terms of the art and the content, I think jujitsu is, at the very top by far. What do you think dealing with working with so many celebrities, you know, we, we see a lot in the, in the jujitsu community about, you know, X, Y, and celebrity got their blue belt, purple belt mm -hmm. or whatever. I've, there's like always so much hoopla when it comes to a celebrity getting a belt in jujitsu. They're like, Oh, it's destroying the sport. Like to me, I don't see it's destroying the sport. First of all, if they want to get, do jujitsu in private lessons with whoever it is, then by all means they can do it. Right. That doesn't affect anyone yeah. else's journey besides theirs. So I don't know what the big deal is. And then second of all, that is if Ashton Kutcher is a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that is a whole lot more people seeing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and bringing people into the the art. You know what I mean? I don't see what the the big deal is. What, what's your opinion on yeah. that? Um, well, celebrities, uh, believe it or not, are people. And so just like <laughs> other <imagine> people, <laughs> yeah, well, some, some of them are, but that's another conversation. Um, you know, most, most celebrities are, are human. And, and so when they become famous, they come to fame with an existing skill set. So, you know, it, it's not the same for everybody. So let's say you have a celebrity who was a college athlete, let's say a college wrestler, or you have a celebrity like a guy, Richie, who did like, you know, bare knuckle karate, um, and, and, you know, had great skills in, in judo. Um, that's very different than, you know, you having a 70 year old celebrity who's not athletic. Um, so, you know, whatever they bring to the table before they start jujitsu really kind of determines the quality of their jujitsu plus the instructor they have is a big factor. But right now there are a lot of instructors handing out belts to celebrities because it gives them attention. And that's the truth. Yeah. Um, you know, I work with celebrities that train jujitsu. Um, I don't promote them. Uh, a lot of other black belt instructors promote celebrities very fast because they want the recognition of being the person that promoted them. That's the truth. We're being honest. A lot of people won't like that I say that, but that's what it is. I do agree with you a hundred percent that 
whatever celebrity trains has no bearing on my jujitsu. It right. has no bearing on, on jujitsu as a whole. Uh, and, and to your point, it, it creates a lot of exposure for jujitsu. I don't know how much value that exposure has only because with okay. certain celebrities, the, the groups that they influence will not be successful in jujitsu because they don't have the attributes to be successful in jujitsu and they don't have the mindset. Uh, I'm not saying that, all celebrities are like that, but there are very specific groups. And so, you know, you look at some celebrities, um, Zoltan, for example, who, you know, I come off a podium and, and he's standing next to me, yeah. you know, he's a celebrity training jujitsu, competing in jujitsu, uh, meddling. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> You, you have all kinds of guys and you have guys that just want to do it for fun and they tell everybody, I have no desire to compete. I don't want to do this. I'm not doing it for MMA. Uh, and then you got the Zuckerbergs who go out there and, and, you know, now start competing. I, I, I don't have um, any um, valuable opinion when it comes to that, even though I work with celebrities, um, you know, we have tons of them that, that we take care of. Uh, if they want to train it, I think it's great. I, I think the more people in the world that train jujitsu, the better the world is. Uh, I think jujitsu teaches you lessons that you can't find in other places very easily. Um, but, you know, I don't think they're going to make jujitsu better or worse. Um, you know, maybe give it a little light and maybe a few extra people get into it because of them. But um, the, the, the main trend that I see is, you see instructors who don't spend a lot of time with their students and then all of a sudden they get this celebrity and they, you know, hold them up like show and tell and they want yeah. to tell everybody about everything they're doing with that. And then the guys they've been with, you know, for five or 10 or 15 or 20 years, they don't do anything for. So, um, that's my only kind of gripe about the celebrities in jujitsu is, is, is really not them. It's the instructors. My two cents. No, I, I appreciate it. And like I said, like you probably have one, you've been doing jujitsu forever. So like, I've only been doing it, you know, a fifth of the time you've been doing jujitsu. <laughs> so it, it's good hearing, even though you say it's not valuable. I, I think it's a very valuable, especially because you, you interact with a lot of people and you've experienced with a, a lot of different people. So, uh, don't, I think that was great. So, <laughs> but, um, what I was going to ask also is, um, when you got out of the the Marine Corps in 2004, uh, you had been doing it for what, seven, 12 years, almost 12 years, yeah. or what? Yeah. What was the I do deciding? More, more, yeah. What was the deciding factor to finally separate? Money. Money. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, what I, I got an offer, um, and this was in 2000, um, and it was, hey, you're ending active service. So your EAS date's coming up. Do you want to go to work for us? And I said, yes. And it was like, you know, 20 some years ago, six figure gig. And I did the math on it. Like, okay, if I retire from the Marine Corps and I only get, you know, this, I don't get basic allowance for housing or subsistence. And I don't get cost of living allowance. I don't get any of this stuff. I only get this. Like, mm, if I did this for five years, I'd, you know, basically make the same amount. And I've been doing it now for, you know, 20 something years. But um, I did the math. I, I, I loved the Marine Corps. Uh, Marine Corps did great things for me. Um, you know, I got to have very, very diverse experiences in the Marine Corps from cooking and washing dishes to, to doing, um, you know, counter narcotics operations with JTF six to being a motion picture liaison, to being a recruiter, to working, you know, with, with, uh, you know, service records, uh, for, for people that did bad shit. Um, I, I got to do a lot of very uh, odd, different, unique things. And I, I think that it gave me a lot of tools and skills and a, an understanding of, of, you know, what goes on on a broad scale in, in the military, not just being an infantry guy, which is what my primary job was. Um, so I, I probably would have stayed. I probably would have done 20. 
Um, but in hindsight, you know, I, I think I made the best call I could in that moment. And, um, you know, there are times where, uh, I miss the camaraderie of the yeah. Marine Corps and, and, and the, the trust factor in the Marine Corps and, and the moments that you have with those guys. Um, entertainment is nothing like it. Um, you're going to fly around in private jets. Um, you know, last night I was flying with a handful of people on a 747, a private 747. Um, you know, we got to where we were going and, uh, then it was jumping into a helicopter flying to the next location. Um, you know, then jumping in our Mercedes and going to the next, you know, so you have these things and you're staying in five-star hotels and you're, you're traveling around the world, but it's void of some of those experiences that, that people have, um, in the military. And, and I wish that I could have both. And the reality is you simply can't. What was it like going to PSD and you're sitting there and they hand you your DD-214 to review, to make sure everything matches. You got all your awards or your stuff, you sign it. And then you walk out and it's the end. What was that like? Cause I know it was I, like for me. <laughs> yeah. I, well, there, it's, it's a love hate, right? right. So, uh, first and foremost, the admin guys that did mine, I know you guys had yeoman, we had admin 015 ones and the admin guy that did mine, you know, did the best that he could with what he had, but a lot of my stuff was wrong and it, and it still is. And it, it's not important enough for me to change. Cause I have the documentation on the other stuff, but a lot of my stuff's wrong. Um, and I was just in a hurry to get out the door as most people are like, yeah, you want to go? Yeah. Check, check, check. Like, yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, let's go. I don't have time for revisions. Right. Uh, so like, I don't want to too, 15, just let's do this DD 214 one time and move. Um, but I, I, I knew that it was a pivotal, uh, point and I, I realized I love the Marine Corps, but I thought what was on the horizon was a better opportunity for me. And I, I didn't think the Marine Corps could provide much more than it already had. Cause I got a lot in that 12 years. Um, but there were times, you know, where you, you hate the Marine Corps, where you, yeah. you hate the silly stuff, you know, and, and what's really interesting to me about Marines that I know anyway, is, you, you have to take uh, what they call instant willing obedience to orders, right? But so many Marines are anti, you know, authority. It's, it's very funny. They have this resistance to authority, but yet they work in, in the structure that requires a ton of it. And so I didn't miss, you know, having the, you know, 0400 formations in the morning to wait until 0700 to get some information. Um, I didn't miss the silly stuff like that. I didn't miss all the silly briefings. I didn't miss, you know, going from one place to supply from supply to this next shop to the next, you know, I, I didn't miss any of that stuff, but I miss the people. I miss the people. I yeah. miss, you know, some of the, the, intensity of the Marine Corps. Um, but I was excited. I was super excited to, to get to see, you know, a different side of things. And, and as you know, cause it's no different in the Navy, you know, I had Vietnam era gear and I went from that to four seasons and Ritz Carlton's and private jets. And so, you know, uh, love, hate, you know, sad to, to go and, and miss the people, but at the same time, excited to kind of get a taste of a different world that I didn't grow up in. Yeah. I, I, when I left the Navy, you know, I signed my D214. I was like, holy crap. My buddy, I talked to him about it, and he kind of, like, prepared me for what was going to happen when I went in there. And uh, he's like, dude, I completely forgot to put my cover back on. I just walked to my car, <laughs> just in uniform, no cover on. Just like, holy crap, I'm out of I'm the done. Navy. You know, <laughs> I'm done. But it's like, to yeah. your point, too, like, I, my first job was for uh, a private engineering firm in Seattle, forensic engineering. I got to travel all over the United States and basically do CSI for buildings, right? So like a roof collapsed. I went there and investigated why it happened and whatnot. And uh, there was there was a, like a culture built on trust in the company. And that's not the military, right? Like they're, they're going to tell you to do it and it, 
100 expect you to do it hover over your shoulder if they have to right when it was like i remember my first day i walked to my boss's office like hey when can i take lunch he's like i don't care whenever you want to take lunch i was like wait a second i was like can i what? does that mean i can go to the bathroom on my own too <laughs> right and i was like i was like wait a second this is so weird i was like when can i go home like after eight hours, like just go. On. <laughs> I was like, okay, like, can I leave early? They're like, yeah, go right ahead if you need to. I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. You know what I mean? <laughs> so early this morning, when I filled out that form to make a head call at noon, <laughs> is it? I don't. I don't need to do it now. I work for Uncle Sam again, and it's very similar to it was in the military. You know, yeah. got to fill leave request out and whatnot. But uh, no, man, it's a. It was a crazy experience. I signed it and I was like, man, this, this is freaking it, man. And the only thing I've ever came close to the camaraderie that it, once again, from the military is jujitsu. And I think it's, we mentioned earlier, it's just the aspect of going through difficult things with people. Mm -hmm. It just builds a relationship that you just don't experience really in anything else that I've experienced, uh, Rob from McDojo Life, he says you can. He's like you can have camaraderie in any any hobby, football mm -hmm. or whatever. And I think it's true to a certain extent. I think I just think adversity just builds a different type of relationship with people. Yeah, you 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 hit that on the head. And what I would say is that I, I would differentiate between like camaraderie and having some connection or community. I think you can have a hobby and have community or yeah. have connection, but like true camaraderie comes from enduring hardship um, as part of that group or part of that team, you know, even a, a pair of people going through this, uh, you know, intense, uh, difficult, you know, challenge, it, it creates something very, very different and it connects you in a very, very different way. And, and that's again, why I said, I think jujitsu is a great metaphor for life. And I also think there's a massive connection between the military, but in particular for me, you know, I see a lot of correlations with the Marine Corps, you know, um, you know, you go through some really bad things and you know, it's part of the, the process, um, in the, in the jujitsu community, you know, you're going to get hurt. You're going to have problems. People are going to do stuff to you. You're going to have bad days. People are going to crush you. You're going to have other people you crush and like, mm, maybe I shouldn't have gone that hard with that dude. And, <laughs> you know, you have, you have these experiences and every single person that I know who does it for long enough has these experiences without exception. Yeah, absolutely agree. Hey Todd, so let's go ahead and uh, if people want to follow you, check your stuff out, read your books, where, where can everyone find all your information? Uh, our company website is tourprotection.com and uh, Instagram. We have a pretty small page on Instagram, but it's at tour training. Um, and those are the two best spots to go. And if, if anything else, you know, you could Google and, and I'm sure find plenty of stuff that way, but uh, website tourprotection.com, Instagram at tour training. And uh, be on the lookout for your new book this year. What was it called again? Yes, sir. Underpinning is what's coming out. So for anybody that's teaching law enforcement, it's a good book. Or anybody that wants to understand, you know, um, components of use of force in law enforcement, the things that really um, control and structure and, and really lead to determining what should and shouldn't be done in, in certain situations, um, that's going to be a great book. If you're not interested in use of force in law enforcement, it's not a right fit for you. So. All right. Hey, and uh, we'd like to uh, end the show with the same question. If you could give one tip to a brand new white belt starting Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, what would it be? Find a good instructor. Find find somebody whose teaching methods fit with how you think and how you learn and how you grow. 
Um, your brain is your primary weapon. So if, if, if they can't convey it to you in your head first, you're never going to be very good physically. You have to understand it. It's not just doing repetitions alone. So finding the right person and, and, you know, finding somebody that teaches in a way that you can digest and then apply, that's to me critical. Perfect. Well, Todd, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. This was a fantastic conversation. I love especially talking with fellow veterans and uh, hearing your experiences through the military and how everyone pretty much does the same thing. <laughs> so yeah, man. Th thank you very much, man, for coming on the show today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good chat. So, hey, guys, thank you so much for listening and watching at home. Uh, be sure to go check out Todd. All this stuff is going to be down below. Uh, check us out, Elbows Tight everywhere. And uh, remember, no oil checks here. Later. Later.